The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9. I'll read the whole chapter, seven or 18 verses. Remember as I read and as you follow along and listen and read yourself that this is God's word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken out in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray once more. Lord, for your word, once again, we give you thanks and we ask for the blessing of your spirit as we now sit under your word, we ask all of this for the glory of Christ and in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what future events in your life can you be certain of? What are the, what are the events that have yet to occur in your experience that you know you can count on? Perhaps at this point in the semester, Some are looking forward to graduation, and you're saying, I'm counting on that. I'm counting on finishing my degree here and moving on to the next thing. Or 
Perhaps there's something that awaits you this weekend on your calendar, on your schedule, some event that you've planned, some meeting that's going to take place, some, some time you're going to have with, with friends or family. What can you be certain of that will happen in the future? Perhaps you're not thinking of an event. Perhaps you're thinking of resources that might be at your disposal in the future, that there is some point down the road when you think you will have access to more money than you have now. Or perhaps you're thinking about a development in your family that might take place, or even your own growth in understanding and ability and aptitude. The reality is this, though, and this is a reality that's hard for us, but one that Ecclesiastes drives home over and over again, that the primary thing we can know we will experience, absent the return of Christ in our lifetime, is death. That death itself is something that all from the greatest to the least will experience at one time. You don't know, actually, whether you'll make it to that weekend event You can't be certain that you're going to graduate. You don't know that your resources are going to increase or that something either good or bad is going to happen even this afternoon. But the Bible teaches, and the book of Ecclesiastes drives home, in fact, in some senses, is centered around the truth that all of us are headed for death. You remember that famous phrase that Benjamin Franklin uh, said uh, in 1789 at the, when the Constitution was being developed, he said, our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. In other words, it looks like it will last. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain, except, he said, death and taxes. Well, Ecclesiastes doesn't deal with taxation but it does deal with death. In fact, it is so central that some commentators have recognized this to be the framework for the whole book. One of the more recent short commentaries on Ecclesiastes is entitled Living Life Backwards. And the subtitle reminds us that what it means to live life backwards is to live your life now in light of the fact that you will die. And that might seem to be a depressing note to strike over and over again in a book, but it is a note that is struck over and over in this book and certainly in this chapter. The question that then presents itself to us and the question that this chapter deals with in some measure is how is it that we are to live in light of the reality of death? After all, if you're, if you're not thinking about death, you're actually missing the most obvious feature of life that history reminds us of over and over again. What do all people who have come before us have in common? Well, they have this fact that they have all died. And so if this most obvious feature of life, that of impending physical death, is not before us, then we're missing something clear. So do you live your life in light of death? Does the reality of life's brevity frame your understanding of what wisdom looks like and of how you should live. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, if you're not living your life in light of death, if the brevity of life and the reality of death isn't framing your understanding of wisdom and isn't framing your understanding of how to live, then you're missing 
a significant and, 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 and actually quite obvious feature of the world in which we live. So what would a wise life lived in light of death look like? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us several features of such a life. And the first feature really comes in verses 1 through 6, that if you were going to live a life that had an understanding of the reality of death and of the brevity of your time here on earth in front of it, what you would need to do first of all is recognize what is certain and what is unpredictable. Now, this might seem like an obvious exercise. It might seem easy to figure out what's certain and what's uncertain, what's unpredictable. But the writer of Ecclesiastes knows that actually this is a, this is a wisdom exercise. This is, this is hard-won reality. And what does he say about the certainties of life? Well, one thing he says, and this is in verse 1, is that all of life and all the events and experiences of life and, and, and the length of your life, the very days of your life, are in the hand of God. That much is certain. Look at what he says. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. All things that you face, uh, the time that you have, the, the circumstances and the people who enter into your life, all of this is under the overarching sovereignty of God. We, we know this to be true. Uh, we see this uh, on every page of the scriptures. We see that even events that seem to be outside of the plan of God, in fact, are, are well within his sphere of sovereignty. And so we see men like Joseph say to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. We see that not a hair falls from our head, but that our Father in heaven knows it, that he cares for even the sparrows. And our Lord reminds us, will he not much more care for you? And this is one of the great truths of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's why we can't give in to this idea that Ecclesiastes is presenting a kind of agnostic perspective on life. No, God is very much involved in the theology of the preacher. And the way in which he's involved very clearly here is the preacher reminds us God's in control. Your life is in God's hands. However, he goes on to quickly add this. That doesn't mean that the righteous and the wicked have easily predictable fates. Now, there is one thing they share in common, and he makes this point in verses 1 through 6, which is both of them, both the righteous, the wicked, the honest, the dishonest, the person who cares for himself, the person who takes no care of his body, the person who is unreliable, and the person who is reliable, they all share one thing in common, which is that they will all die. But other than that, it's very difficult to predict with certainty how their lives will unfold. We know it's all in the hand of God. But just because we know it's all in the hand of God doesn't mean that we can easily draw a straight line and know precisely where things will lead. In fact, he says, sometimes it's the case that it looks as if the righteous and the wicked are on precisely the same track. We know that both of their lives end in death, but it appears even during their lives, and this is, I think, the point, 
in verse 2 that these, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. And this is perplexing to us because we would ordinarily think if God's in control, then there should be vastly different outcomes. And often there are. In fact, he's going to go on to say at the end of this chapter, wisdom is better than folly and wisdom very often serves oneself and other people well. But it's not, it's, there's not an easy straight line with all of these things. There's not an easily predictable fate that the righteous and the wicked fall into. And this means, though, that where there is still life, there is opportunity for one to do what is good. Look at what he says in verses uh, 5 and 6. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. In other words, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us is that the fact that you are still alive and the fact that God has given you this day and this breath, because all of it's in his hand, means that you have an opportunity to embrace wisdom. You have an opportunity to obey the commands of God. You have an opportunity to subject your life to him and to his word. You have an opportunity to live in trust for what he is, of what he has said. Where there's life, there's opportunity. And that should be a reminder to us. When we recognize what is certain and what is uncertain, uh, that should also bring us an awareness that the fact that we have life today means that we're called by God to obey today. Remember what Psalm 95 says, that refrain that's repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, now, is the acceptable time. If there are sins for which you need to repent, well, today is the day. This is your, your day. Today is in God's hands. He's given it to you. And there are no guarantees for the future except the guarantee that one day you won't have that opportunity because you'll be in the grave. So recognize what is certain and recognize what is unpredictable. This should also lead us away from the overly simplistic understanding that some have of the Christian life and even of Christian teaching. It is the case, and we freely say this because the Bible freely declares it. It is the case that to live a life in obedience to the Lord is to live the blessed life. And it's also the case that wisdom, uh, generally speaking, has an outcome that is far, far better than folly, even in this life. And, and yet, a note of caution is in order. And there is a note of caution at the beginning of this chapter that, that sometimes in this life, it can be hard to trace out these exact consequences at a given moment in time. So we need to avoid the kind of simplistic answer to these things. Well, what's the second Reality. What's the second thing that needs to govern our, our minds as we live in light of death? Well, the second really major focus is in verses 7 through 9. So we're recognizing what is certain and what is unpredictable. But in verses 7 through 9, we might summarize it this way. Because of the fact 
that death lies in front of us. The way we need to live our lives is, I think, summarized by the word in verse 7, and that's the word joy. Now, now the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't mean to suggest that there won't be tragedies in life, that there won't be difficulties. In fact, if there's any book of the Bible that gives us that kind of realism, it's this book. But nonetheless, the writer of Ecclesiastes recognizes that as God gives appropriate opportunities for joy, we ought to embrace those opportunities for joy. Uh, that's, not, that's not keeping death at arm's length or pretending that it doesn't exist. That's actually embracing the reality of the brevity of life. Because what God has given us in this brief life that will end one day is to eat our bread with joy and to drink our wine with a merry heart. God has approved what you do to have your garments be white and let not oil be lacking on your head to enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. In other words, as God gives blessings of life, as God gives these little fleeting moments, and they are fleeting, we recognize that, but as God gives us these little fleeting moments with friends and family, as God gives us those, we should embrace them with joy and thanksgiving. This is the same kind of thing that the Apostle Paul was describing when he talked about how, how we're to understand food as given to us by God. It's all to be received with thanksgiving. It's all created by Him. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing is applying that to all the good things that God's given us in life. We're to enjoy those things. And it's not pious or godly or holy to turn aside from those things because we know that life is brief. Yes, life is brief, and that's these are the good things that God has given us in the midst of our short portion of life. And in, as the writer says, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So whatever your hand finds to do, he says, do it with all your might. You can embrace the work that God's given you to do, knowing that it may be forgotten after you're gone, uh, knowing that in some sense, you can't be entirely confident of the outcome of all the decisions you make, uh, knowing that those who follow you may even misunderstand what you've done. Nonetheless, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, this place of the dead. So those are the two major instructions that the writer gives us. Recognize what is certain and what is unpredictable and live life with joy. But there's a kind of case study that he gives at the end of the chapter. This is in verses 11 through 18. And this case study revolves around a question. And the question is, in the midst of impending death, in the midst of the brevity of life, does the embrace of wisdom make any difference at all? After all, it would be a natural temptation to read these verses about how short life is and to wrongly conclude that then what I should do is just embrace folly or not engage in the pursuit of wisdom, not engage in the hard work that it takes to, to, to think through life in a wise manner. And so he engages 
that question in verses 11 through, through 17. Is wisdom worth it in the midst of these realities of life? Well, the first thing he says in answering this question, it's actually a good question. And the preacher takes it on at several points in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is where he takes it on with the most depth. The first, the first thing we need to know when engaging with that question of does wisdom make a difference? Should I try to live wisely in the midst of this brief life? Well, first thing he says is it is the case that death overtakes those who are strong and smart and wise. So, so engaging in wisdom is not engaging in something that will remove that fundamental reality of the brevity of life and the reality of death. The race isn't to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. For a man, verse 12, does not know his time. That's the first thing we need to know. But the second thing we need to know about wisdom is that while wisdom doesn't change the basic equation that he's laid out, he does say that wisdom greatly benefits oneself and others. And he drives that home by means of a a little parable that he, he gives in this second paragraph here, beginning in verse 13. And the parable goes like this. There was a, a city and a great king came against the city. And he doesn't tell us the details of the size of the army or even the size of the city. He just says there's a great king in a small city. And so it would appear that the great king is going to overtake the small city he built great siege works against it. But in verse 15, there was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom, he delivered the city. Now, we don't know precisely how he used his wisdom or how his wisdom helped uh, defeat this great king that came up against it. But the reality is his wisdom overcame the strength of the attackers. His wisdom was used as a benefit to himself as protection for the city. His wisdom really made a significant difference in the lives of many people, in the, in the life, we might say, of his whole culture and his whole society. And so what the, what the writer is showing us is the great value of wisdom. Yes, embrace wisdom. Yes, pursue wisdom. Yes, as Solomon says in Proverbs, in all you're getting, get wisdom. Put that first. Put that far above riches or attainment or fame. Get wisdom. We see why, because wisdom is so powerful in helping oneself and others. Now, he reminds us in verse 15 that wisdom may be forgotten and that wisdom may go unheeded. But nonetheless, verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. All of this can be undone by sin, and he makes that point in the last clause of the last verse of the chapter. And yet wisdom is better than folly, even in this brief life that God has given to us. Now, when we take a step back and think about our obligations today, and even when we take a step back and look at the perspective of the New Testament, which adds so much depth to our understanding of, of death and our, and, our, and our now looking back at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the way in which he conquered death. And the writer of Hebrews says he not only 
conquered death, but he, he, he is able to take away the fear of death because he conquered the one who has that, that power that, that causes fear in us, this fear of death that Satan causes. He destroyed the one who has the power of death, even the devil. And so as we take a step back, we do see uh, some truths that the New Testament reveals to us that aren't made clear in Ecclesiastes 9. But I think there are some implications from Ecclesiastes 9 that, that are, are, are directly for us today. And the first implication comes in this first section, which is, remember, as, as he said, uh, all, all of our deeds, all of our circumstances are in the hand of God. Yes, take the reality of death seriously. You have to. It's an obvious fact that's out in front of you. But God is in control of all things, governing the world wisely. You know what we say about God's works of providence. We say they're most holy, wise, and powerful in his preserving and governing of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that our lives are predictable, that we'll always see justice done, or that things will work out the way we expect them to work out in a moral universe, in a universe in which God is in control. The Bible doesn't promise that in this life. The Bible does nonetheless remind us that God is in control and that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, what would it mean for us as ministers? What would it mean for you as a minister of the gospel to live your life and to engage in your ministry in light of the realities of death? Remember how Baxter described his own ministry. He says, I preached as never sure I would preach again as a dying man to dying men. That reality of death was in front of his face as he preached, and he preached differently because of it. He knew that he was going to die. He knew that this might be his last sermon, and he knew that it might be the last sermon of those who heard. How, did that, how does that affect our lives? How ought to it affect your life? Well, certainly, as Baxter knew, it should affect your preaching. It should affect the content of your preaching and the fervency of your preaching. If it's the case that the next time you stand up in front of God's people might be the last time you stand up in front of God's people, well, that should surely give you an urgency in your preaching. And it should also affect the content, shouldn't it? Because we dare not preach trifling matters. When we stand up here, it's serious business. And it's serious business because we're standing in front of people and there's one thing we know they all share in common. And that's that they will very likely face death one day. There's no time in that kind of situation to deal with small matters, to deal with things about which the Bible gives us little instruction. This is a weighty time. It's a weighty office. And that means we can't avoid talking about death. Just as we have to face it in our own lives, 
in the quiet moments of our soul. It's the most obvious fact of the history of human life. And just as we have to face it in our own lives, we can't avoid talking about it either in our preaching and even in our regular conversation. What difference would it make if we really recognized the brevity of our lives and the brevity of the lives of those to whom we're speaking? I think so many peripheral matters would go to the side if we recognized the reality of Ecclesiastes 9. A philosopher named Ernst Becker wrote a book in the early 1970s that was renowned, actually, it won a number of significant scholarly awards called The Denial of Death. And his thesis was this, that the history of modern psychology and modern philosophy was really a series of attempts to deny or, or to forget about the reality of death. It's a profound book. It's not written from a Christian perspective, but there are profound truths in that book. And what he traces in that book is just, just the, the way in which trying to get around this truth leads to all kinds of strange consequences and ideas that are destructive. Now, this needs to be something that we're free to speak about because it's certainly something that the Bible speaks about from, from the fall on. It, it, it is appointed to men once to die and after that to face judgment. And Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. He's appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That said, as we talk about this and preach about this and live in light of this and, and number our days so that we might present to God a heart of wisdom, we also have to recognize the, the relationship of death, biblically speaking, to the fall. It, it's true that it is a consequence of, of the sin of man and a perpetual reminder of our fallen state. It's something that all of us face because all of us by nature are objects of wrath. All of us are descendants of Adam. All of us are, are fallen. And so just as these, these great realities of life are in front of us, so these great spiritual truths ought to be impressed upon us. Think about the reminder every day that human beings get of sin and of the fall. As we hear about death and as we see death and as we think about death daily on a regular basis, it's a reminder of the realities that are described for us in Genesis chapter 3 and the realities that Paul drives home for us in Romans chapter 5. And so we need to recognize the relationship of death to the fall, acknowledge and appreciate and preach and teach the reasons why all are deserving, not just of physical death, which we experience, but even of separation from God apart from his mercy and grace. And this, I suppose, leads to the next obvious implication, which is that we, we among all, must be those who proclaim and keep at the center the realities of eternal life found in Christ. You, you, could, you could visit some churches and sit under some preaching ministries and, and begin to think 
that the entirety of the Christian life was simply about a moral reformation or, or about making things a little bit better in the here and now, either for you or for your family or for society. No, no, no. It's much weightier than that. We're talking about eternal life and eternal punishment. We're talking about the realities of death. And so even as we preach the fall, we also preach these great, great truths that God loved the world and sent His Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. We, 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 we hold up in front of people the one who says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will, will never die. He'll, he'll live. That's the Christ that we proclaim. The Christ who has the only for this reality of death. Jesus died in order, Paul says, to abolish death and to bring life and immortality to life, to light through the gospel. And it's that gospel that we proclaim even now. I'll also say this, that because we understand and live in light of death, and because we proclaim eternal life at a horizontal level, that also means that we can do what very few in our culture can effectively do today, which is that we can actually minister to those who are facing death. You know how our culture operates, and this is peculiar to our moment in time. It's not this way everywhere on earth today, and it certainly hasn't been this way throughout all of history, but it is now in our moment that those who are dying, those who are near death, those who are facing death are kept at arm's length. And it's, it's, a, it's a necessary defense mechanism as we live in denial of death. But, but Christians and Christian ministers can, can go straight into that and could go straight into that because we understand the reality of death and because we offer life and light in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So we must be ministering to those who are dying. We must be at the hospital beds of those who are about to pass from this life to the next. We can do that with courage, but we have something to say because what we're proclaiming is nothing less than the one who is the resurrection and the life. We live in a death-denying culture, and that manifests itself in all kinds of ways, and that is the air that we breathe. We think it would be better for us to deny death altogether, and yet the scriptures tell us that, in fact, we need to understand it to understand the complexities of life in light of death, to rejoice in the life that God's given us, to embrace wisdom in the here and now, and to turn to the one who is wisdom himself, to the one who has abolished death and who brings to life his people. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you. For your word, we need this kind of bracing instruction. We're so prone to filter out things that we don't want to think about. But we know that's not the path of wisdom, and that's certainly not the path of obedience to your word. 
So, Father, by your spirit, drive home these realities to our hearts even now. Cause us to, as we reflect on these things, embrace and rejoice more fully in our Savior who's gone before us. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.